Welcome to the North Point <laughs> Plus podcast. This is episode number 80. With your host, Brent Conlon. With your humble guest host, Brent Conlon. And with us, as always, is Pastor Rick Rubel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good to be with you, Rick. Um, good to have you back. You want to start with a little summary of uh, sermon on Sunday? Like we don't get to talk about anything fun? How was Ohio State in the NCAA tournament? Oh, shut up. <laughs> They weren't there. All right. However, next year. They did look tough at the end of the year. Um, yeah, they did okay in the tournament. And Michigan State still winning for Sylvia. That's and all of our other Michigan State fans. So, yeah. All right. Uh, so we're in. This, so we can jump in now. Yeah, we can, we can go right to it. Um, the uh, yesterday we talked about the the uh, story, the account, the event of Abraham. God asking Abraham to to sacrifice his son Isaac, and looked at it really through a different kind of a lens. the the uh, The whole concept of the Easter egg thing is really um, that that when you understand, the more you understand, the more you appreciate all the pieces that are there. So we looked at that story and then just drew a whole bunch of parallels, 10 parallels, as a matter of fact, between that and um, and Jesus, and uh, and just talked about how things that happened with Abraham and Isaac pointed towards Jesus' death on the cross, um, really his death on the cross. So, yeah, that's the, that's the really short version. The... Um I don't know what what would you call this sermon series? Easter eggs. Okay. And this one, I mean. <laughs> so we've got how many more weeks till Easter? Uh, just three more Sundays. Yeah. What, uh, th- this next week, um, we're, uh, I'll tease this next week's message. This next week, we're talking about uh, a um, event in the Old Testament that I don't know that I've ever heard anybody preach about before. But Jesus refers to it in the New Testament, which is why it's in this series. Um, and and he's the one who says, oh, that was an Easter egg about me, um, which is kind of interesting, but you'll have to come on Sunday to hear that or watch it on the live stream, whatever. Uh, and then uh, Palm Sunday weekend, another Easter egg, uh, some things that happened in the Old Testament that pointed to the role of Jesus. Um, and then on Easter Sunday... Another Easter egg um, from one of the prophets that is that again Jesus referred to himself about. That's uh, so we've got three more Sundays and the Good Friday service too. Yeah, the Good Friday service. Do you has that been announced? What time that is? Seven o'clock on that Friday night. Yep. And last year was the first year that we did it, and um, and people responded it was great. really well to it. I had somebody say, are we doing the exact same thing we did last year? We said, no, it's going to be different but similar. You know, we're, we're, we are going to share in communion uh, and really focus on the death of Jesus, in a, I think, in a real powerful way. Excellent. Well, do you want to get into some questions? Sure, let's do it. We've got plenty of them. Uh, first question is, um, I didn't bring my readers. Uh, Mine won't help you. <laughs> with these Easter eggs being made apparent, would you say that the testaments are repetitive or reflective? Um, so, okay, ask me the question again. Do you want, you want this? Yeah. That's okay. I'll, I'll keep my computer. Um, were the Easter eggs, re, uh, what, what are the words, re, re, repetitive? No, were the Testaments. The Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament, repetitive 
or reflective. I actually think that they were neither, if that makes any sense. The, the New Testament is not a repetition of the Old Testament, and the Old Testament doesn't reflect the New Testament. The, the important thing, I think, to that question is that the Bible really is all one book, one story, that all points towards re- the redemption that we have through Jesus. So the Old Testament sets the stage. Um, it's not reflective. Uh, like it, um, Everything that happens in the Old Testament um, is like putting all the pieces in place so that the story of redemption can get played out when Jesus comes and, and his life on earth that's described in the Gospels. Everything in the New Testament that happens after Jesus going to the cross and being resurrected is, okay, how does that impact our lives in a, in a clearer way? So the things that are in the Old Testament point towards Jesus. Um, all, the, this is probably a gross oversimplification, but all of the Old Testament is an Easter egg that points towards Jesus um, in, the, in the way that we've talked about it. And then the New Testament lives that out based on, on everything that God set up in the Old Testament. Does that make sense? Sure. <laughs> I was confused you, by the question, but I, the answer yeah, makes yeah, sense. Yeah. It's, it's, so the New Testament, uh, let, me, let me just say it again, the New Testament isn't just a repetition of the Old Testament, because you see God's character and attributes lived out in a, in a different kind of way. God's still the same, he never changes, but everything that happened in the Old Testament was designed so that it could set up the New Testament. So, so God's holiness and righteousness that gets expressed in the Old Testament, um, that helps us understand how um, critical it was to have a perfect sacrifice that would die for us um, in Jesus, that, that he would, uh, he would uh, die a horribly violent death um, because that was the only way to pay the price for sin. Excellent. Second question, uh, why is Isaac referred to as Abraham's only son when he fathered a son with Hagar? Hagar? Hagar. Hagar. No, yeah. Hagar. Hagar. Before Isaac was born, that's that's a great question, and you know, I thought I wondered if somebody would ask that because when you when you study it, when you're reading through in uh, Genesis fifteen, sixteen, whatever, where um, Abraham goes ahead, or Sarah actually takes the initiative and says, "Hey, it doesn't look like God's going to come through. Why don't you go ahead and sleep with with this maid with Hagar?" Um, Abraham says, "Okay." Um, are you sure? Sarah says, "Yeah, this is what this is what um, what what needs to happen." Abraham does. Um, Hagar gets pregnant. Uh, once the baby's born, well, actually, once she's pregnant, Hagar starts just really um, rubbing it in Sarah's face, and um, and Sarah gets ticked, and uh, ultimately. Um, ultimately, there's lots of tension that happens there. And when Sarah ultimately gets uh, pregnant with Isaac, Sarah says, get rid of Hagar. Um, and, and Abraham's a father. He, you know, he has invested 13 years of, of life into, uh, into Ishmael as his son. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's got to be really, really hard on Abraham. 
but Isaac was the son of promise. So when when God says, take your son, your only son, he's talking about um, not physically his only son, but the son that God said, this is the one that the promise is going to come through. It's going to come through you and Sarah, not through you and Hagar. And um, this is the son that matters. So it's not it's not um, disrespectable, disrespectable, disrespective or negative about Ishmael. It really is all about the importance and the the um, the critical nature of Isaac being the child of promise. So that's why God said it. Makes sense. Third question: In the Old Testament times, I like this question. Uh, many people, I like all the questions. <laughs> But I like this question. <laughs> Did you write it? <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, many people live far longer than we live today. So if Scripture says someone was 90 years old, practically speaking, were they really the same as a 90-year-old person today? Or would they have been more like middle-aged? I just wonder about the aging progression when lifespans were so much longer, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts. That's, that's a great question as well. So when you read especially the first eight chapters of Genesis, and you've got people who are living hundreds of years, Methuselah, 969 years. Um, even Noah uh, lives... Uh, he's 600 before he starts to build the ark, so... Mm. Um, the, just crazy longevity, and uh, without without going on a tangent too far, if you um, if you listen to the uh, creation guys, they would say their their explanation in terms of historically, the scientists would say that up until the flood, um, scripture never talks about rain uh, before that, and that the firmament that there was this cloud cover that really shielded the earth from the rays of the sun. So people, while chronology remained the same, um, the aging process didn't affect bodies in the same way that it does now. And that ultimately when God loosed the firmament, firmament, when he let the rains come, that all of a sudden that's what caused all kinds of stuff. The ice age, it caused the earth to, to tilt, and it, um, and it made people start living shorter lives. Now, Take a pause, and um, I think in Genesis chapter uh, eight, I think is when is where it is that God says um, man's days on earth are going to be 120, which lots of people like. Growing up, I thought, oh, God says nobody's going to live longer than 100, 120 years. Um, uh, that's what I thought it was. At, from that point in time, nobody lives past that. And you would think that that's a contradiction that God didn't know what he was talking about because there are people that even now that live past 120, and there are people recorded after God says that that lived past 120. Um, and so you try and make some sense of that. And I think really when you go back and look at that, what, what, um, what God was saying it was there's 120 years before the flood's going to come. It was actually a warning to say, get your act together because judgment's coming. Um, that's all background. I'm just kind of yapping. How's <laughs> that? Um, but I would say this. Um, while I think it's possible because of the longevity of people that, that people did have babies later, um, there is some consistency in that um, when you look at the story, it's clear that Sarah thought 
there's no way I'm having a baby at this point in time. Um, she wouldn't have laughed the way that she did. Um, it says that her, her, her womb was closed. Um, Sarah thought there, were, there was no way possible that that could ever happen. Abraham says the same thing when the, when the, um, when the messengers come. So we can't just say, oh, everybody still had babies. It's not that big a deal. It was a big deal because they recognized that it just wasn't going to happen um, because of how old she was. Excellent. Um, question number four. Do you suppose that uh, Abraham was lying or was he being honest when he tells his servants that he will return after worshiping or when he answers Isaac telling him that the Lord will provide the sheep? Was he just trying to keep everyone calm by withholding the truth? Is there a difference? What do you think? Well, it's funny. I mean, you. when I read that, I thought, well, yeah, I mean, he was just trying to keep people calm. But, I mean, it's a lie. So, I mean, is that something? But I guess that's a, uh, that's a moral question. Um, I don't think Abraham lied. I, um, I think that he was. Uh, um, we don't know because we can't get inside Abraham's head or heart. Um, we can only, all we have is the text to, to have us um, understand and just try and make some sense of it. Um, I think that when Abraham said, um, you know what, what was the beginning of the question again? Because that, that's a long question, isn't it? Yeah, it uh, says, do you suppose Abraham was lying or was he being honest when he tells his servants that oh, we, got it. We, will, we will return after worshiping? I, I actually think when you look at the consistency of Scripture, and especially in terms of what Hebrews says, Hebrews 11, the, the passage that I quoted where, where it says, Abraham believed that, that God was going to resurrect him from the dead, that Abraham really did believe that somehow— God was going to come through. It it was the only thing that made sense because the 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 um, the two pieces that are there are Abraham knew and trusted God, and Abraham um, and God had told Abraham to kill a son. So how do you make sense of that? Do you trust yourself or do you trust God? And that that's I think um, something that we live with all the time now. We look at things and say, there's no way I can do X, Y, Z. I know that God has told me to do that. He's, he's called me to that. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's what I'm supposed to do. There's no way I can do that. Um, so the question is, do you trust yourself or do you trust God? And I think that that's the deal with Abraham, that Abraham knew that he was supposed to sacrifice Isaac. He was willing to do that, and he knew somehow God was going to come through, whatever that looked like. God was going to come through. Um, the uh, yeah. So the, I I think ultimately that's the the um, the crux of the uh, part of the crux of the story for us is do we trust God more than we trust ourselves, and uh, and that's a that's a great question and a hard question. And that was before you mentioned this Sunday, right? That was before. Any resurrection? Yeah, yeah. There had not been any any situation where anybody had been raised by from the dead. Uh, even when you think about like um, the prophet Ezekiel's um, vision, where all the dry bones come together and God brings 
um, muscle and and sinews and blood and skin back on those and brings back. None of that's happened yet. Um, there's not been any sense of that at all. And so Abraham trusted God, trusted that God somehow was going to do something that he had never done before, that Abraham really didn't have a clue on. Excellent. Um, next, number six, um, we're moving through them. Yeah, we're going fast. <clears throat> well, you and I take too long usually when I'm here. <laughs> keep it moving this time. Uh, number six, is Mount Moriah a mountain like Everest or the Rockies or what? Uh, does it still exist today? Yeah, um, I, it's funny. I had a I had a conversation on the phone this morning from somebody who was uh, a part of the a part of the service yesterday and said, "Hey, let's talk more about Mount, Mount Moriah," um, because when we hear Mount Moriah, in at least in my mind, I think, "Oh, Rocky Mountains kind of a mountain." Um, it's not that at all. If um, like if you talk to Jamie about. Uh, her trip to Israel. Israel's, uh, it really is a place more of rolling hills. So while there are some places that are significantly higher in elevation, it is, it's, uh, I would compare it to Southern Ohio, to the, to like foot foothills of the Appalachians. Um, the elevation change may only be three, four, five, six hundred feet. It's not like thousands of feet. Um, you know, the, the Rockies, you've got a lot of those, you've got five, six, seven thousand feet of elevation change. That's not the case here. Um, so Mount Moriah, M- Moriah was actually a name that described an area, um, but, but a specific mountain as well. So when it talks about Mount Moriah, um, where Arona's um, threshing floor is, talked about that yesterday, where the temple was built, that's in this um, in this kind of hilly country, and it's a high place where uh, Jerusalem is. So if you look at pictures, like um, if you Google Jerusalem right now and look at the pictures, you can see that there are hills that are there, and and one of the highest places is where the temple was, and that's where that is um, the area of Moriah that that would have been called Mount Moriah. Now it's all covered in Jerusalem at this point in time, so it's not like. Um, I'm I'm having trouble drawing a parallel to say, you know, you you talk about a city that's elevated, you talk about the city, you don't necessarily talk about the geographical um, descriptor of a mountain or a hill or whatever it is. Well, uh, speaking of Jamie, yeah, you did uh, mention earlier, and I, in case she's watching. Jamie, I, are uh, you out there? We were, we were ho- yeah, we were hoping that uh, maybe sometime you might come in and share some of your stories of your yeah. trip. Yeah, that would be great. That would be great. Uh, all right, question number seven. We talked about 10 Easter eggs. They went by too fast. Is quantity or quality more important in them? Yeah, um, the, the, um, this is, a, this is a, a question that I kind of wanted to talk about because this whole series, the terminology, we've taken current terminology, um, Easter eggs. That's the common um, the common term that's used to describe stuff that's in video games, that's in movie that are in movies. That um, that the more you know, the more you appreciate it. You see something there and think, oh, that's really good. The examples I told yesterday, Pixar, Toy Story movies. There's a ton of them in Marvel. There's a ton of them as well. When I was just going back to look, there's like there's little things in the Marvel movies 
that um, things that have Stan Lee's um, birth date in it, that if you know his birth date, it's like, oh, yeah, that's what that number is, the, a house number or a license plate number, that kind of thing. Um, in Scripture, we've never really called the things that are, in, um, that, that are there that point to Jesus um, or po- that point to eternity Easter eggs. We've called them um, either the, the theological technical terms are type or foreshadow. It, it, um, uh, Moses was a type of, of Christ. He was a type of a Christ figure in that God used him to rescue the, the Jewish nation that was under captivity with Israel. Type, um, type is uh, not like a, a kind of, but it's like the thing that is a foreshadow that points to that. Um, we've, we've just chosen on this series to use the word Easter egg, and it does get a little bit muddy, but it really is all about the foreshadow piece or seeing how God works to set the, the pieces in place. In this particular message with 10 things, um, I, I kind of said it um, in the message yesterday. There are a couple of them that are kind of like, is that just a coincidence? Is it, you know, is that something that God really designed? Um, and, and as I was kind of processing, this is actually the way that I thought. I, I thought, you know what? Mickey Mouse's watch, the Mickey Mouse watch, didn't get in that Pixar, Pixar movie accidentally. Whoever was writing the story said, oh, it would be a really cool thing to put Mickey, Mickey there with all of the toys, all of Andy's toys in his bedroom. And so he put it in. All of those things that are Easter eggs in movies or stories, all of the things that foreshadow any kind of event in any kind of story, the author puts them there for a purpose. There are some things that, that, um, that when you go back and analyze, you say, oh, I wonder if he really meant to do that or not. And I've heard some authors say, oh, I wouldn't even think about it. But yeah, that's true. That pointed to this thing that was going to happen later. Um, in yesterday's message, there are, I, I actually started with 15 distinct things and tried to whittle it down. I got when I got to ten, I thought that's a good place to stop because otherwise I was I really was probably I would have probably stopped at six or seven, and um, having ten sounded like a good round number. Um, but the uh, but the things if you go back and look in in the app notes or watch the message again, the last five are the things that I thought were really the the most important. The the um, I think that there was really something significant about the location, about Mount Moriah. I, I felt like that was a really, really big deal. I felt like it was a really big deal that um, that both Abraham and Jesus knew that's that's that they were going. To, you know, Isaac knew he was going towards his death. Both of them wanted to um, find a different way. Both of them were willing to submit to what was going to happen um, at God's direction. And, um, and, and uh, both of them were, were confident, oh, well, ultimately the substitutionary atonement piece, the fact that, that a ram was there to be sacrificed instead of Isaac, that's a really big deal. And the concept that Jesus um, is there to take our sin that's a huge deal. So, um, I, like, I don't have any. I don't have any trouble if people say, "Eh, that one, uh, not that big a deal." You know, the I I think that it's really interesting that Isaac carried the wood, 
and that Jesus carried the cross. Uh, I think it's really interesting that there were two servants, that Scripture says there were two servants. Abraham could have brought lots of servants, or no servants, but he brought two servants, and Jesus died between two thieves. That just kind of interesting stuff. Did God design all that? Um, I don't know, but but like I said in the message, I think that um, for Jews who grew up with the story, being told the story over and over again, and it being critical to their understanding of who God was and the story of their people, that that as it played out, I don't know when it as it happened, if they said, oh, this is just like Abraham and Isaac, but I think, you know, months, years later, I think they're sitting around the table saying, have you ever thought about the fact that when Abraham sacrificed Isaac, Isaac carried wood and Jesus carried wood? And, and then I think lots of people started going, that's really interesting. That's really, really interesting. So Is this a common belief? Um, I don't know. It's, I, I've, I don't know if it... Uh, uh, ask that question. Be more specific with that question. I mean... Is, is what a common belief? The belief between this parallel. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the um, most... It's funny because I've never heard a message on it. Um, but I have heard teaching on it that the Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac is a type. It's a, it's a foreshadow of what would happen with Jesus. And most of that really focuses on the substitutionary atonement piece, that, um, that God provided a ram in place of Isaac. Jesus is provided as, as the sacrifice in our place. Um, he, he's the one who takes our sin on himself. Yeah. So it's it, it's not a it's not a weird theology offshoot kind of thing. It's it's um, for hundreds of years theologians have pointed to Abraham sacrificing Isaac, um, not just as a as a um, as a key understanding of what faith really looks like, but also as a part of God's story. Excellent. Uh, eighth question, last one. Yeah. Th- that we had submitted. Uh, if God put all those Easter eggs in place, does he predestine everything in history? Um, how much time do we have? Yeah. Um, big question. Yeah, we, we've talked about it in the podcast uh, several different times. Um, and I think the, the um, I, different people land on different places. There are some people who are smart people, godly people, who say, yeah, God writes the story and we just live it out, and God sets all of that in motion, and um, and and we live that out. He predestines it, he he foreknows it, um, and that's the way it all works. I think, uh, I, like I, this is my personal opinion. I I believe that God gives us free will. We can choose to do whatever we want, but somehow in that free will, God knows what's going to happen in the future. I, um, without going too crazy, I think that God's not—he's um, not limited by time, by linear time. So He can see at any point in time. He can see what's going to happen down the road. He can see what's happening now. He knows what's happened in the past, and all of that's connected because. God isn't limited by time, um, and so, like I, I think the the um, 
the writers of movies that include Easter eggs, especially the, the like the Marvel guys, that point to stuff that they know those movies aren't going to be made for a while, but they they put that in there. They know it's going to happen later, but they don't necessarily have it all fleshed out exactly. I think the the cool takeaway from all this is that we can trust God. You know that that God knows our futures, and that we can trust Him. That um, He holds us in His hands, and we can trust Him. Hmm. All right. Uh, last question. So. It's funny, I, um, it's a lot easier for me to read other people's questions than to actually have one. Um, driving around with my daughter today and just talking about the service yesterday, yeah. she asked me to ask you something, so yeah. I take no credit for this. Um, well, first thing that she had mentioned was um, that she wished when we were doing um, um, communion, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that when we were doing communion, that maybe we might take a little bit longer for reflection yeah. and repentance during communion, um, and um, and not as a complaint. Yeah, just a a thought, thinking out loud, and and then um, and then she was talking about what they say in First Corinthians about it. So yeah. she sent me what it says and asked me to ask you your thoughts on this. Yeah. And I have questions about communion too. I yep, mentioned to you before. Um, you know, it's only been a few years that I would consider myself a Christian, and yeah. and and I've been to a church before where I wasn't invited to take communion, mm-hmm. um, which was a new experience for me, and I understand. Um, but anyways, what it says in there is, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and... So eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves fully, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Um, I don't know. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let them eat at home. Think that's the point has already been made. Yeah. Um, I mean, what is what is your thought on all of that? And I'm only asking this question because we did do communion yesterday. Yeah. And I every time communion comes up, I, um, I mean, I guess I have questions about the meaning of all of that too. So, how much time do we have? Yeah. Well, we're <laughs> at 30 minutes. Oh, okay. You and I did a 52 minute pod, uh, podcast <laughs> we, last yeah. time. We, um, well, we won't go. We won't go that long. The um, What's interesting is in the time constraints that we have, communion is really, really important, and we want to give time to that um, and, and just try and figure out how to do that. Have it be fresh. Have it be meaningful for people. Um, so it's not just a ritual that we go through that, you know, you do the same thing, say the same thing every time, and you just kind of check it off. That's, that's not what communion is about. It's helpful to know with the church in Corinth, that 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 it was a church messed up with lots of problems there you know there were all there was all kinds of sin issues there and and basically when they celebrated the lord's supper they weren't taking a little wafer and a little bit of juice they're having a whole meal and they weren't paying attention to the needs of anybody in the body everybody was just saying ah, i want that i want this I, you know it it had become a free for all and so paul's instruction to them 
Um, we contextualize it in the way that we celebrate communion. But if you take a step back and say, okay, what was it? What was going on here? What was at stake? What's the purpose? And then how do we do that in a way that makes sense in our current context? Um, the I think it's a challenge for us every time that we share communion to um, to try and help people really discern both um, their relationship with Jesus and the price that Jesus paid on the cross for us. So when Jesus says, "This is my body that's broken for you," that there's that that we need to have this clear sense of the cost of Jesus. Um, going to the cross, you know what he experienced for us. Um, when Jesus says, "This is my blood, which is which is shed; it's poured out for you." Um, nobody took Jesus' blood; Jesus gave his blood. He willingly allowed his, the the crown of thorns on his head. He willingly allowed the spirit to go in his side. He willingly allowed the the um, the spikes in his hand, and so um, the blood that flowed. He gave willingly, and when we drink the juice, um, it that needs to, again to remind us of the cost of our salvation, and how much God loves us. You know what Jesus was willing to go through for us. Um, there are there are some churches that would say communion is so important. It's so important that we really get what we're doing that we're only going to do it once a year or once a quarter. Um, I, I don't think that that was the pattern in the New Testament. I think that when you read through the New Testament, there there really is this sense that um, that when the body came together, they celebrated the Lord's Supper at least as often as every other as every week. Um, we don't we don't celebrate the Lord's Supper at North Point every week. We do it once a month, um, but. Um, if it fits with a message or um, whatever, we might do it more often than that. Um, it would, you know, if if we structured stuff so that we did it every week, that would be great. That's that's kind of the tradition I grew up with that that we would do it every week. The danger in that is it be, it can become a check off kind of thing. A lot of times when people talk about that, they'll say, "Oh, do you get you know? Does your wife ever get tired of you saying?" I love you, and I hope she doesn't get tired of that. Um, uh, I think that there that it's helpful for us. Um, I think that it's important for us to repent, to to um, to take inventory, and to and to consider, um, you know, where we are, um, our relationship with Jesus, our sinfulness, to, to have a time of repentance, and to do that. Um, the uh, the I I think the the great thing with with Carrie's meditation yesterday what you you try when you're leading people together in a time of communion to help people think about things maybe from a fresh perspective and I loved what he said in terms of just him as a teacher his investment in his students mm-hmm. when when it comes down to the end what you're going through. Um, when that time comes that you know that they're going to be dispersed and you're not going to be with them again. And, and to me yesterday in communion, that was a, that was just a really powerful, um, concept. Um, that's different than, than sometimes we say, everybody, this is the time you really need to examine yourself. Um, some of the times when I'm leading communion, 
Um, there's a phrase in First Corinthians First uh, Corinthians eleven that um, says that you'll do this until he comes, and and the concept of um, that this is something that we do until Jesus returns. That's I think just a really powerful um, picture of communion because ultimately when we when we are in God's presence, it says that we're going to experience the Lamb's feast. You know that we're going to share communion in heaven together in a way that Jesus is there, God's there, and it's um, it will be like oh, this is what everything has pointed to. You know forever. So um, the I think the the challenge for us is to try and figure out how to do that in a way that makes sense in our services. But it's also a challenge for us individually. Um, at North Point, we do we do communion um, on the third Sunday of every month, typically. If you know that, um, I think that there's something that can happen really that's very powerful in um, in preparing your your mind and your heart before you ever get to church for what you're going to experience in communion. Um, one of the guys who was a professor at the college that that Deb and I went to, um, he talked about his um, he talked about his week um, from communion to communion, which was interesting. He would say, you know, the the from the time that he takes communion until Wednesday or Thursday, he's reflecting back on what took place when he shared the Lord's Supper on Sunday. And that from about Thursday on, everything in his mind is pointing towards the time that he'll share communion with the body of Christ. That that next Sunday, again, tradition, we celebrate the Lord's Supper every every week, and um, and uh, it it just was a great thing. But I appreciated that so much to just think. Most of the time, we think, oh, it's Sunday morning, got to get up. I got to get up and go to church. Um, we 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 tend to think in terms of routine, and we don't prepare our minds or our hearts for um, for what we're going to experience in worship, in the Word, and in communion. And that there's a, there's a great opportunity for us for God to speak to us more clearly, more plainly when we do the prep before we ever get there. That's a great answer. I get so wrapped up in the in the story of how I just get wrapped up in how Jesus is feeling when he's talking to the disciples mm. that <clears throat> how it relates to me. I don't even know if that ever occurs to me during um during communion. I'm just kind of lost in that story. So Yeah. First time I've probably thought about it. So appreciate that, Good. Maddie. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. I think that's it. That's all we've got. Um, we'll look forward to seeing the rest of you next week. Yeah, a new Easter egg and an Old Testament story that I don't think you've ever heard preached about before. Ba 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 ba. Like, share, ring the bell, do whatever you need to. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Thank, man. Thanks th- for hosting. Yeah. Thanks, Rick. Appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity.